Good afternoon. My name is Adriana Link, and I am the head of scholarly programs at the American Philosophical Society. Welcome to today's virtual discussion on sciences of the mind with Courtney Thompson and Alicia Puglionisi to talk about their new books, An Organ for Murder, Crime, Violence, and Phrenology in 19th Century America, and Common Phantoms, an American history of psychic science. I'm glad that so many of you have joined us today. The American Philosophical Society resides in Lenape Hoking, the homeland of the Lenape people, whose historical relationships with the land continue to this day. The APS acknowledges with respect their continued presence and perseverance and expresses its sincere thanks for the past and ongoing generosity of numerous indigenous communities and individuals who have offered their guidance, expertise, and opportunities for collaboration. For those joining us for the first time, the American Philosophical Society was founded by Benjamin Franklin in 1743. The society is a catalyst for the discovery of new knowledge. Election to membership honors those who have made exceptionally significant contributions to science and the arts and humanities and public life. The society promotes research by providing over one and a half million dollars in research grants a year, primarily to younger scholars who need the support the most. Our library and museum collections and research centers serve scholars and visitors from across the globe. Please check out our website, www.amphilsoc.org, to learn more about what we do and the news for forthcoming events. Today's talk is also co-sponsored by the Consortium for the History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. The consortium brings together educational, cultural, and scientific institutions to promote public and academic understanding of the history of science, technology, and medicine. It does this by awarding fellowships for researchers, producing events for academics and for the public, and by providing online resources for teaching, learning, and research. The consortium was established in 2007 as a regional collaboration of 11 institutions in the Philadelphia area. It expanded to include institutions across the, across the United States and Canada in 2014, and now boasts nearly 30 member institutions located across the globe. Both of the books at the center of today's discussion relied extensively on research materials and collections housed at consortium member institutions, including the American Philosophical Society. We're using Zoom webinar for today's discussion. So not to worry, uh, you've all been muted. If you have a question, uh, please use the Q&A button at the bottom center of your navigation bar. You can type your question in there at any time during today's event. There will be time at the end of the panel for questions with our speakers. We're excited to offer closed captioning for today's virtual discussion. If you would like to use it during the panel, please click on the CC box on the bottom navigation bar of Zoom. It is to the right of the Q&A button. With that, I'm very pleased to introduce today's speakers, Courtney Thompson and Alicia Puglianisi. Dr. Thompson is an assistant professor of the history of science and medicine and US women's and gender history at Mississippi State University, where she also chairs the Medical Humanities Certificate Program Committee. She received her PhD in history through the program in the history of science and medicine at Yale University. Her articles and short essays have appeared in journals including ISIS, the Journal of the History of Medicine and Allied Sciences, Social History of Medicine, 18th Century Studies, Endeavor, and Perspectives in History. Dr. Alicia Puglianisi is an adjunct professor and writer living in Baltimore. She received her PhD in the History of Medicine at Johns Hopkins University. Her writing has appeared in The Point, Atlas Obscura, and Motherboard, among others. She is the author of the novella Crawl Crawl, the poetry chapbook Views from the National Forest, as well as Common Phantoms, an American History of Psychic Science. So we'll begin today uh, with a presentation from Dr. Thompson, and I'll turn it over to you, Courtney. Thank you so much, Adriana, for the invite and for that very generous introduction. It's really my pleasure to be talking to all of you today about my new book, An Organ of Murder, Crime, Violence, and Phrenology in 19th Century America. Now, I often get asked, how I came to this topic. It was a very strange and winding road, and I'm happy to talk more about it in the Q&A if anyone's interested. But often the question isn't really why this topic, but why phrenology or why a pseudoscience, a dead science? What I wish to demonstrate today, and as I explore much more thoroughly in my book, is that phrenology is not so dead after all. It continues to shape our social and cultural landscapes well into the present. In modern America, Phrenology is often dismissed as a pseudoscience 
or as fortune telling, a relic of an unenlightened past or an amusing pastime for the masses. The phrenology has its darker side as well, both in the, in the past and continuing into the present. In January, 2021, in the wake of the Capitol insurrection, one militia member interviewed by Ronan Farrow for the New Yorker declared himself to be a believer in phrenology. Now, this confluence of events might seem surprising or even concerning, but it's the subtler continued uses of phrenological thinking in modern America to which I think we should draw our attention. In An Organ of Murder, Crime, Violence, and Phrenology in 19th Century America, I explore the origins of both popular and elite theories of criminality in the 19th century United States, focusing in particular on the influence of phrenology. In the United States, I argue that phrenology shaped the production of medical legal knowledge around crime, the treatment of the criminal within prisons and in public discourse, and sociocultural expectations about the causes of crime. The criminal was phrenology's ideal research and demonstration subject, and the courtroom and the prison were essential spaces for the staging of scientific expertise. So today I'm gonna to provide you with a very brief overview of my book, focusing on the main arguments and a taste of some of the sites I discuss in more detail. In my book, I argue that phrenology constructed ways of looking as well as a language for identifying, understanding and analyzing criminals and their actions. This work traces the long lasting influence of phrenological visual culture and language in American culture, law and medicine but I think I'm getting ahead of myself. We should really start with the basics, which is to say, what is phrenology anyway? Phrenology has been known as the doctrine of the mind or the science of the skull. It was a 19th century study of the skull to identify portions of the brain and hence the mind, a set of theories that were interpreted and put into practice in various forms throughout the course of the century. In brief, the brain was the organ of the mind and the mind was comprised of multiple distinct faculties, each of which could be linked to a single organ within the brain. So on our phrenological bust that you see here, each partitioned numbered space on this bust stood for an organ within the system with each organ representing a particular trait. And these in turn were organized into sets such as the animal, intellectual or moral powers of mind, more about that in a moment. Now, each organ had a particular set of qualities demonstrating what the exercise of this organ, either its excess or its deficiency might relate to in terms of behavior or character. But in effect, what this was, wasn't fortune telling per se, but early cerebral localization, an attempt to link particular portions of the brain with qualities of mind. And it was based on anatomical research. And I should mention, it was also taken quite seriously as a science, at least in the early decades of the 19th century. To these ends in the book, I distinguish between three groups. First, we have the phrenological founders, figures like Franz Joseph Gall, who's standing into them here, Johann Gaspar Spurzheim, and others, who originally developed these theories and promoted them, mostly physicians um, and also a lawyer, George Coombe. Second, we have our group of practical phrenologists who took on phrenology as a profession and promoted it to the masses, especially figures like the American Fowler brothers. And our cultural idea of what phrenology is is mostly focused on the work that these, um, these figures did. And then we have the third group, which bridged the gap, phrenological enthusiasts, as I termed them, who were elite intellectuals who embraced phrenology as a tool for their professional fields including medicine and law, but who did not take on phrenology as either a profession or as a chief identifier. The argument that I make in my book is that phrenology in the 1820s and 1830s was primarily an elite affair, not a popular science. The individuals who were founding phrenological societies, writing phrenological treatises, and participating in the early popularization of phrenology in the United States and in Europe were primarily highly educated white male intellectuals, especially physicians, but also professors at institutions like Harvard and Yale and lawyers, judges, and political figures. Phrenology was thus something that was taken quite seriously by its audience in this period. And the intended audience was a self-consciously academic and elite group. Phrenology was viewed as cutting edge science with the potential to open up a whole new way of looking at the world. 
Professors taught their medical students phrenology alongside anatomy, and students at medical schools actually uh, received their medical degrees based on theses on phrenology. However, these elite phrenologists or phrenological enthusiasts did not think that phrenology should be the masses. They disdained popular phrenology and figures like the Fowler brothers and other practical phrenologists and itinerant lecturing on the subject. Now, one key aspect of the appeal of the science to these elites was the potential for phrenology to be used to solve intransigent social problems. And one key area that emerged in this period was the potential for phrenology to solve the problem of crime. And in effect, phrenology can be thought of as the first criminal science. With regard to the criminal, the most important organs were the set of the animal organs, which broadly circle the ear, which you can see in blue on this phrenological bust. Of this set of animal organs, the most important were destructiveness, which is located just above the ear. You are all welcome to find your own organ of destructiveness, originally known as modsin or vogsin, the organ of murder or strangling. The second most important organ was acquisitiveness, originally known as the organ of theft, debesin or egin sumsen. Thus, the composite image of a criminal viewed face on would be wide above the ears and to the sides of the head with a flatness or narrowness to the crown of their head. This image, a poster from a mid 19th century American phrenological lecture was labeled solely as a representative of the organ of destructiveness as we see here, but the transformation of the head depending on the size of this single organ suggested the significance of this organ for reading the skull and elucidating types. This comparative illustration suggests the differences between good and bad heads, perhaps even the criminal type and its antithesis. Large destructiveness coded for the entire set of animal propensities, which together often signaled a criminal mind. Thus, the characteristic shape of the head as a whole indicated character, with wide heads being bad, narrow heads being good. And this shaped the visual language of what criminals looked like, connecting wide heads to a set of dangerous behaviors well into the 20th century, and possibly even into the present. But beyond the specific organs and the visual lessons they conveyed to the interested observer, phrenology also promoted a unique language of crime around the term propensity, which allowed phrenological frameworks for thinking about crime to spread in a coded or implicit way. When commentators throughout the century indicated that a criminal had a, quote, propensity to destroy, a propensity to murder, a propensity to steal, and so forth, they were using phrenological language and concepts to explain and discuss criminal behaviors, even if they no longer had recourse to specific organs like destructiveness or if they eschewed phrenology altogether. But how exactly was this accomplished, the spread of image and language? And this was through the entry of phrenology into different spaces. In the book, I identify and explore several in great detail, and I demonstrate how these two languages visual and linguistics spread through these various sites in mid-century America, carried by elite scientists and physicians, by college professors and college presidents, by lawyers and judges, as well as by practical phrenologists and their middle-class clients. Phrenological criminology came to shape not only phrenological sites and spaces, but also city streets, courtrooms, and prisons spaces which facilitated the continued spread of these visual and linguistic theories of the criminal. So one site that I discuss in some detail in the book is the courtroom. And here, phrenologists served through the 1830s, between the 1830s and 1850s in the United States, phrenologists served as courtroom experts called to the stand as expert witnesses, and phrenology was also used by lawyers and judges in courts of law. In the courtroom, phrenology was tested as expert medical legal knowledge used to bolster the expertise of both legal and medical professionals. But more importantly, phrenological language was also introduced into these spaces where it continued to perpetuate if often distanced from its more phrenological origins. Overt uses of phrenological expert witnessing were quite rare. I am much more interested in the covert uses of phrenology, especially that facilitated by medical legal scholars, like Isaac Ray, who I used as an example of a phrenological enthusiast earlier. While phrenology ultimately failed as expert medical legal knowledge, 
phrenological language continued to spread within these sites, used to explain criminal behaviors, and especially used to structure notions of criminal insanity. If we move from the courtroom to the prison, here phrenology was much more successful. Phrenologists of every variety used the prison throughout the century, even as the modern penitentiary system was in the process of development. Uh, the founders of the discipline, Gall and Johann Gaspar Spokesheim, for example, conducted their early anatomical research in prisons. And indeed, the prison has long been a, a resource for anatomical research. The gallows and the penal system were directly tied to the development of anatomical knowledge. Thus, it is not surprising that the prison became the laboratory for the development of phrenological theory. Within the phrenological community, the prison thus loomed large as a space in which useful bodies were collected and could serve as exemplars of phrenological doctrines. Phrenologists were invited into penal spaces to view convicts and to examine executed criminals, and they came away with knowledge about these bodies, with skulls or busts taken from convicts pre and post execution, like the two that you see here, and with new evidence to support their science. If the relationship between phrenology and medical jurisprudence was fraught and uneven throughout this period, phrenology did find a place within the penal system. If phrenology was efficiently discarded as an elite medical legal practice, it persisted as part of the mechanisms of crime and punishment. And further, the prison not only served the phrenologist, the phrenologist also contributed to the disciplinary work of the prison itself. The uses of vision by phrenologists within the prison mirrored and extended its panoptic aspects, contributing to the culture, the development of a culture of self-policing. Phrenology in the prison added to the disciplinary gaze, enabling further objectification of prisoners. The phrenologists, of course, also carried this visual regime out of the prison and translated it into daily life. Practical phrenology, by creating and perpetuating a culture of vision predicated on the identification of good and bad heads, enabled the production of judgment by appearances in daily life. A student of practical phrenology in mid-century America was primed to engage in panoptic practices on the street, seeking bad heads and a propensity for crime before the commission. Practical phrenologists in the in mid-century United States thus communicated to an interested public the importance of looking in the assessment of character. If a phrenologist could identify the worst offenders with a rapid eye in the prison, could not a phrenologist or an otherwise well-studied phrenological amateur identify a bad head and a potential criminal on the street? In this way, the panoptic gaze of the prison was translated into the mid-century urban street and adapted for daily life and urban concerns. And these messages about the importance of looking lasted well into the 20th century. If you note the legend on these images I've shared, which are from a 1904 text, we can see this precept to look and judge those around you on, in your daily life. Of course, it's hard to identify the extent to which real individuals really engaged in practices of surveillance in daily life. Yet the discourse of bad heads and visual identification of same was both pervasive and long-lasting. A century after the first introduction of what was then called craniology, destructiveness in particular was still being framed as the organ that led directly to crime, as we see in the image on the far left here. So where does that leave us? To what extent are phrenological image and language still structuring the way we understand criminality and the mind in general in the present? The images and language of phrenology are of course still with us. You are all probably familiar with the image of the phrenological bust, which has become something of a common joke at this point. But these kinds of overt joking phrenological imagery like the self-described phrenological adherent I discussed at the beginning of the talk are not my primary concern. We see these images and we think of phrenology and then we dismiss these images because they're jokes. But the images and language of phrenology have spread in a more concerted and concerning way, which is easier to overlook, but harder to dismiss. As just one example, studies in both AI facial recognition and in social psychology using facial width to height ratio often tie wide faces and heads to undesirable qualities, including untrustworthiness, aggression, and other kinds of bad behavior. I would argue that these images 
replicate both the imagery and the assumptions about good and bad heads from the 19th century. How is the one image here different from the other? What are the implications then for our present? If phrenological language and image continue to proliferate in this way, shaping the way that we see and judge and talk about both ourselves and others. We may wish to believe that we have left phrenology in an unenlightened past, but I would suggest we are instead living in a never ending phrenological present. Thank you. And I very much welcome your questions. I just want to applaud, that was great. I'm very excited um, to put these two projects side by side. Um, so my name is Alicia Polinisi and uh, I want to thank Adriana for her great introduction and for helping to organize this event, um, for instigating this event. But to kind of transition <laughs> into um, discussing my book, um, which is called Common Phantoms, An American History of Psychic Science. Um, I have sort of a similar need to explain the basic premise, um, what is psychical research or what was psychical research, um, which is the kind of fringe or parascience that I'm discussing in this book. Um, and so we're moving a little bit later in the 19th century, um, to talk mainly about the 1880s um, through the early 20th century. Um, and so um, psychical research was a science devoted to the study of mental phenomena, not explainable by the known senses. Um, so it's interesting that we're kind of, we're pivoting from biological understandings of what determines human character and behavior to, um, internalistic explanations and psychological forms of explanation. Um, so psychical research is the study of mental phenomena not explainable by the known senses. This includes telepathy, clairvoyance, spirit communication, hypnosis, automatisms, and so forth. So towards the end of the 19th century, as the locus of selfhood shifted from soul to mind, uh, investigators probed the operations of the subconscious and tried to ascertain whether the mind's powers extended beyond the individual body. So this is uh, an image that I love of a digitized version of the Proceedings of the American Society for Psychical Research, uh, which was established in 1885. And so, of course, the digitization process involves people manually turning pages in some cases, and so they're kind of ghostly hands are captured in this image. Um, so the marquee members of the American Society for Psychical Research or ASPR include figures like William James, G. Stanley Hall, Charles Sanders Peirce, Josiah Royce. These are leading public intellectuals and influential scholars. James and Hall are celebrated as founders of American psychology and social science. Um, the ASPR's publications, however, are filled with the testimony of ordinary people from across the United States who reported supernormal mental experiences. Investigators very much desired this material as the foundational data from which a scientific understanding of the human mind could be derived. Yet, they would grapple for decades with skeptical colleagues and with the producers of that data who had their own expectations for what a science of human experience should accomplish. So until the 1970s, historians tended to interpret psychical research as a somewhat embarrassing quest for spiritual consolation by intellectuals who, could, who couldn't cope with the advent of a scientific secular age. I follow more recent scholars in viewing it as an important origin of the mind sciences, um, albeit one that's been occluded by an emphasis on the authority of laboratory psychology. So, how did psychical phenomena become an object of inquiry in the 19th century United States as well as globally? Such phenomena have always been associated with a wide range of religious and spiritual practices and are well understood within knowledge systems predating that of what we commonly refer to as Western science. Psychical research attempted to reconcile the emerging scientific understanding of the mind with its capacity for experiences that defied the physical limits of the senses. Psychical researchers came to the field with many different motives, 
Some hoped to prove the immortality of the soul, while others sought to map the unconscious or treat psychiatric disorder. Many novel religious and healing movements arose in the 19th century United States. One of the best known called itself modern American spiritualism, which was centered around the practice of direct communication with the dead through mediums. Spiritualism built itself as a rational religion for the modern age. It didn't demand faith, but rather called for people to investigate and test its truth for themselves. And this was common among other kind of alternative spiritual practices and healing modalities of that period. They were kind of adopt, adopting this ethos of Baconian science. Um, scientists repeatedly sought to disprove spiritualism, but were unable to do so because of constantly shifting conditions among mediums and believers. Much authority over phenomena rested with female mediums who were seen as more sensitive and sympathetic to invisible forces. Scientists seeing this Scientists, seeing this as a potentially pathological condition of the nerves, sought to impose experimental controls or better to remove mediumship from the spiritualist context. And so you see here one of these setups um, attempting to kind of uh, use an apparatus to control the behavior of a medium and measure, uh, her, measure her responses. Prominent neurologists such as Charcot and Pierre Genet, inspired by these occult practices, developed theories of hypnosis, hysteria, and multiple personalities that opened up hidden dimensions of the mind for medical investigation, what Ellenberger calls the discovery of the unconscious. So psychical research emerged in the 1880s from an optimism that science was advancing enough to capture and test the elusive forces at play in popular practices such as spiritualism and mesmerism. Some participants wanted to prove or disprove the claims of psychic mediums, but most wanted to save the phenomena for science, believing they could reveal important psychological laws. And so their understandings about how these laws might, might work were often influenced by um, current technological developments, such as the telegraph. And so concurrently, we're also they're also engaged with these discourses about the doubling or multiplicity of personality and what might be happening in the subconscious mind, um, which Robert Louis Stevenson's Jekyll and Hyde is a sort of popular, uh, popular science fiction reflection on. So there are many excellent histories of psychical research, and I'm hoping to add to that conversation um, with this project which used, uses the ASPR archives to form a series of thematic case studies based on the interests and explorations of the society's participants. Over the next 10 minutes, I'll talk about two of these case studies that I think will go well in conversation with Courtney's work on the history of phrenology and, criminal, and criminality. Um, and so that's the first and fifth chapters of the book. To start with, uh, who were psychical researchers? Um, because I was, a lot of this project was just engaging extensively with the correspondence of the society. Like other amateur scientific societies, the ASPR was led by white men with academic, sometimes scientific backgrounds and attracted mainly white middle-class participants, both men and women. This demographic makeup both reflected and reproduced the hierarchies of 19th century race science. Psychical research was conducted from the standpoint of an objective universal white mind understood as the highest product of human evolution. Further, it studied lower orders of humanity for insight into the primitive mental qualities that could still threaten the white population through nervous degeneration, insanity, criminality, or miscegenation. This is not to say that people of color did not participate in and adapt spiritualism, mesmerism, and psychical research according to their interests. Um, there are excellent studies out there of the radical reformer Pascal Beverly Randolph, the medium Harriet Wilson, and the New Orleans spiritualist circle of Henry Louis Ray. Um, the novelist Pauline Hopkins incorporated many psychical phenomena and powers of mind into her fiction. Du Bois's idea of double consciousness is drawn from psychological discourse about the multiplicity of the subconscious mind. So this was a very flexible set of practices in, that was influenced by and reappropriated for non-white purposes. Um, but the leadership of the ASPR was definitely rooted um, in the academy, which is predominantly white. 
request to craft a certain kind of experimental subject who could produce reliable data from their own internal experiences led the American Society of Psychical Research to develop a method for mass data gathering that was open to anyone willing to record observations on a standardized form. Due to the avid consumption of periodical literature throughout the United States, their recruiting efforts had broad geographic reach. In the sense, ASPR leaders and many participants regarded it as a democratic science, illustrating the psychology of the American people, as Josiah Royce put it. At the same time, enthusiasm for this time-consuming work was mediated through friendships and social connections and through access to particular periodicals and newspapers. The society sought assurances of rational scientific detachment through extensive vetting of reports for which many details of personal life and station were deemed relevant, as I'll discuss in the second case study dealing with insanity. But um, to start off with, let's talk about the weather. Um, why was the United States Weather Bureau such a touchstone for William James in his aspirations for psychical research? It was a successful example of citizen science, building and utilizing a widely dispersed network of non-professional observers to accumulate data. It had national economic and military significance as well as an obvious bearing on everyday life. Meteorology was big science in its day. And James wanted psychical research to be seen as having the same salience and deserving the same badly needed resources. There are rhetorical similarities in terms of the nature of these phenomena. Both weather and mental experiences are time-based and widely distributed. No single observer can capture the entire picture of the phenomenon. Further, um, as we see in this uh, illustration of ball lightning, um, the phenomena are spontaneous and rare. They can sometimes be reproduced in the laboratory, um, but they're not going to, um, they're not going to be exactly the same. And so further, we have these method methodological similarities. James writes admiringly that the Weather Bureau synthesizes knowledge out of discontinuous and chaotic local experiences. Uh, so how should they go about accomplishing that with psychical phenomena? Uh, the answer is that the ASPR, like the Weather Bureau, attempts to mobilize what it refers to as an army of foot soldiers to observe and record mental manifestations. It tried to build a network of amateur data collection um, through distributing these standardized forms um, and also through the use of standardized instruments. So. Um, on the left, you'll see um, a barometer distributed by the Weather Bureau. And on the right is an automated die roller and recorder that the ASPR endorsed and arranged for its members to get a special discount. Um, and this is to be used in experiments in telepathy. There was also an interest among some psychical researchers in a conceptual similarity between weather and emotions. Physicians such as Thomas Davison Crothers posited a mental atmosphere made up of transpersonal emotional forces. So I'll spare you Crothers' anecdotes, but they include a case in which the tumultuous mental energy of an urban mob permeates the brain of a sensitive individual who had retreated to the countryside to rest. So through the mental atmosphere, the individual becomes a barometer for registering public sentiment. Not all psychical researchers endorsed this specific theory, but the, ASP, the ASPR definitely saw meteorology as a disciplinary model. Unfortunately, they generally lacked funding and personnel to process the data they received. James called the 1892 census of hallucinations, quote, a terribly slouchy piece of work. You can see how the prospect of mental forces that travel through unknown channels and permeate the inner sanctum of the mind would raise concerns about socially inappropriate forms of contact and politically dangerous sentiments. While fiction fully embraced transgressive themes of mesmerism and psychic contagion, psychical researchers felt that the best evidence for their phenomena came co from conventional family relationships, where sympathy between minds was seen as natural and desirable. Husbands and wives, mothers and children, and siblings appear most frequently in their report. Evidence could be questioned when it came from a human instrument or relational apparatus seen as unnatural or unhealthy. This question of who is an appropriate subject for science 
who gets to witness and testify takes us to the final chapter of the book where I consider a ubiquitous question about psychical researchers. What if they were subject to delusions or hallucinations or were especially susceptible to the power of suggestion? How did they deal with these common sense refutations of their supernormal claims? And so that uh, question of deception or doubt goes, uh, goes back, of course, to earlier practices such as spiritualism and mesmerism. Um, almost as soon as spiritualism began to circulate, its critics deemed mediums and believers to be mentally ill. These concerns about mental health took shape in the language of their time. In the 1850s, lunacy was a feared outcome of spirit communion. By the 1890s, physicians linked it with nervous disorders such as hysteria. Mesmerism was associated with similar risks until neurologists like Charcot and Genet, um, transforming it into hypnotism, took it up as a research tool in therapy. Part of the reason critics couldn't, uh, couldn't disprove spiritualism uh, or discredit it on this basis is that spiritualists didn't deny that their practices both drew on and impacted the mental constitution of participants. Sensitive or nervous people made the best mediums and mediums often suffered from nervous derangement or exhaustion, yet they understood their nerves as part of a controllable knowledge producing system. So I think the epitome of this uh, we see in this effort by London physician and spiritualist James John Garth Wilkinson uh, to turn the tables. So Wilkinson proposed using spiritualism to treat insanity. He suggested that the parameters of sanity itself were misplaced. If the revelations of spiritualism were true, then asylum inmates were correct about reality and the doctors were wrong. He felt that the incarcerated simply had to learn the skills of mediumship to control the flow of spirit communications they received. This move of reclaiming both reality and therapeutic agency was one with which the, a the, the ASPR um, would later engage. By the 1880s, psychical researchers had a complex position towards mental illness, similar to that of spiritualists and mind care practitioners. Some amount of nervous disturbance was associated with the phenomena, but that didn't necessarily discredit the person who reported the experience. So many people were afflicted with neurasthenia in this period that there would be no valid witnesses left. Most ASPA reports are prefaced with what I call a good health clause. People began their letters with a description of their mental state, admitting to some nervous problems, but affirming their competency and capacity for rational judgment. Through transparency and trust, psychical researchers maintained that they could police the borders of sanity and keep out true madness. The society's officials often took a clinical tone towards correspondence, sometimes diagnosing hysteria or neurasthenia to position, to position themselves on the side of medical science. However, many participants, such as George A. Thatcher, admitted to a cruel and nervous suffering and were still taken very seriously over long correspondences with ASPR leaders. The phenomena that Thatcher described, the ringing of bells and hearing of voices, could be easily dismissed as symptoms of illness. Yet his style of self-presentation, along with testimonials and social connections to men of science, seemed to have established his credibility as a self-observer. By the early 1900s, psychologists such as Joseph Jastrow and Hugo Munsterberg were characterizing belief in extraordinary phenomena as a mental fallacy and in more extreme cases, a pathology. Jastrow discredited common sense standards of judgment and self-report used by the ASPR to establish evidence, proclaiming that people are inherently irrational observers unless they are laboratory psychologists. The ASPR had long sought to counter such criticism criticisms by aligning their field with the authority of psychiatry. Famous neurologists and psychiatrists such as Pierre Genet and Morton Prince had been early supporters of the society. They envisioned an updated version of Wilkinson's spiritualist asylum in which the ASPR would both study and treat people who experienced psychical phenomena within the context of clinical mental illness. The ASPR never had the resources for such a project, but an affiliated group of psychiatrists and psychoanalysts in New York City did pursue these ideas from the 1940s through the 1960s. So ASPR participants were aware of mental illness as a factor in psychical phenomena, and many struggled with doubt about their own mental state. 
Many letters came from people suffering distress, anxiety, and fear who wanted an expert opinion on whether their experience was psychical or psychiatric in nature. I should add that these, so these people reached out to the ASPR instead of a doctor um, because of the fear of stigma around these supernormal beliefs. So more interesting than whether or not their experiences were real is the set of practices they developed to maintain a stable but evolving consensus about how we know the real. In the 20th century, those practices increasingly diverged from the procedures of academic science. Ongoing public interest in parapsychology has shaped Americans' perceptions of individual access to mystery. It holds open an epistemological space in which individual subjects are authorized to certify the reality of their own experience, defying the scorn of experts while also seeking expert approval. There's an intuitive appeal to this kind of knowledge through firsthand witnessing and networks of trust that work to establish the reality of dubious phenomena. These take on new and troubling power in the case of pseudo or parascience movements that make claims on public policy. So this leads to some overarching conclusions um, that tie together the material in my book. Um, and the first is that this project contributes to a large and growing literature tracing different origins for psychology than the standard, lab, the standard narrative that centers the rise of the laboratory. The formative nexus of psychology included practices like psychical research understood in their times as modern and scientific, but at variance with today's notions of scientific rationality. And these origins were later disowned as superstitious revenants, but I argue persist in many ways. Um, and revisiting this history matters because it illuminates the social shaping of objectivity. Further, um, an important question uh, similar to uh, the question that Courtney asked about phrenology is, did psychical research fail? What does it mean to call something a failed science? Um, clearly it has many survivals. The network community of psychical research taught people to observe themselves and their experience in what they understood to be a scientific way. ASPR leaders devoted much of their time to molding members into instruments of self-observation through correspondence and example. Psychical research is a distinctive moment in the long transition from amateur to professional science where novel forms of relation between experts and the public were attempted, though mostly abandoned in favor of an authoritative lab and university centered science. And finally, psychical research was an attempt at democratic knowledge making at consolidating a wide variety of experiences into a mutually agreed upon account of reality. As usual, this was not a true democracy. It took white middle-class men as the model and arbiters of the normal subject, authorized to exclude those whose experiences were too unlike their own. Yet it also contained within itself challenges to this universal subjectivity, the possibility of strange unruly connections that subverted the hierarchical racial and gendered order. Part of the ASPR's work was attempting to control and normalize unruly connections introduced by its broad constituency. For me, that's the most interesting thing about this field and why it's important to include in the history of the mind sciences. The idea that the self is radically open to influences from the living and the dead can be frightening, but why? It cuts against the individualistic behavioral model of self that psychology was trying to establish in this period and which has become the predominant account of personhood in our society. Looking back to psychical research helps us understand how this rupture came about and how uncertainty and unruly relations have persisted in the margins, continually reasserting themselves. That is my presentation. Great. Thanks so much, uh, Courtney and Alicia, for these really uh, terrific presentations. And, and I can't say enough good things about these books. Uh, they're really just masterfully written uh, and, and wonderful to engage with. So I encourage everybody to go out and buy copies. Um, I have a couple of questions and we're getting some great questions in the chat, so I'm going to try to move through pretty quickly. A um, few questions coming up already, and, and I think you touched on it at the end, uh, Alicia, and, and this is about sort of biases and, and, and who gets to participate uh, in, in these kind of knowledge making endeavors. So, you know, Courtney, I think you say in the beginning of your presentation that phrenology is, is an elite affair. Uh, and I appreciate, Alicia, how in, in your, your book, you talk explicitly about how, uh, you know, psychical research is in response to ordinary American anxieties, but those, that ordinariness is defined as being, you know, white, middle-class, and, and male. 
So I'm curious to hear from both of you about, um, you know, what other biases uh, factored into the creation of uh, phrenological and psychical research, either in terms of, of who counts as a subject, whose perspective is represented, and who actually gets to do that work. Um, question in particular about folk practice and practitioners and, and their involvement in, in uh, putting together this knowledge. And then how do these biases perpetuate or reinforce uh, societal divisions based on race, class, and gender? So, uh, you know, easy question to start. Uh, Courtney, maybe we'll, we'll hear from you first. Sure. I mean, that's about seven questions in there. So I'll, I'll see what I can touch on. Um, part of the reason why I emphasize both in the book and in the discussion, the elite nature of phrenology is because it's so often misunderstood as a folk practice, right? As a pseudoscience that was done by these itinerant lecturers with their hands on your head. And that isn't untrue, but that's not the full story. And the elite origins, the fact that the, the people who first developed it were taken very seriously, they were scientists, they were physician anatomists, right? They had the um, authority of their science to, to undergird their claims. This is actually very crucial for the way that it makes its way through Europe, through the United Kingdom, over to the United States, and then eventually becomes a global science, as James Poskett has recently argued. So the, the embrace of the science by the elites at the initial period is what sets the stage for the popularization later. But crucially for my story, it also allows uh, phrenology to spread into places that we might not expect it to, like courtrooms, for example. Um, so, you know, the question about lay practitioners um, or folk practitioners, phrenology wasn't folk science. It was developed by uh, a physician anatomist uh, as a part of his anatomical research. Um, we can, there's a lot we can say about the nature of his research, you know, his methodology, um, but it absolutely was not a folk science. And in fact, it was set up quite clearly in opposition to older folk practices, especially physiognomy, which does have a very, very long history dating all the way back to Aristotle, had been an elite science, had sort of become a folk practice by the time we get to the 19th century. And a lot of uh, phrenologists, phrenological enthusiasts basically said, well, it's not that, it's scientific. It's not an art or, or fortune telling, it's, it's based on anatomy, right? Along with that, uh, something I talk about in the book and that other scholars have also addressed, um, thinking of the work of, of people like Carla Battelle, who, uh, Susan Branson, Cynthia Hamilton, uh, Britt Ruster, James Poskett, is that phrenology had a lot to say about gender and race. And I should, I should mention uh, a disability as well, which is an identity category, which often gets left out or, or gets forgotten about uh, in the, the way that we talk about identity. Um, phrenology as a science produced by elite white intellectual men, primarily white men, although there were certainly female pr practitioners, there were also practitioners of color, but as one that was dominated by white men in the 19th century, an era that was preoccupied with racial and sexual science and science was being used as a tool by the governing elite to govern the masses and also to draw lines between different groups of people, it was absolutely used um, to um, to make gender difference, to make racial difference, to make differences in terms of class. It does get more interesting with the story of crime, however, because criminals were thought of as a class unto themselves in a lot of ways. Um, I, could, I could really go off on a tangent about how racial profiling dovetails with this and how gender dovetails with this, but the really, really short version is that in the early decades of the 19th century, when phrenologists were talking about the criminal as a type, uh, was they were constructing the criminal as a separate group. What they're mostly concerned with were um, men of European descent and of the working class who may or may not also be mentally ill. Um, there were certainly female criminals, there were certainly criminals of color, but they were treated very differently. Um, the, a lot of the concern with the criminal comes out of this matrix of uncertainty about strangers in this urbanizing, industrializing world that's with this influx of immigrants, right? So most of the criminals they were really worried about were the people who looked just like them. And they wanted to make it very clear that you could tell at a glance whether this white man was a great man, especially a phrenologist, a scientist, and that man was a bad head, a criminal. Um, I can go on, but I want to make sure Alicia has... <laughs> can can speak to this. Oh, yeah, I mean, I think that's a really, again, I think there, I'm trying to map in my brain what the, um, the kind of crossings of these different strands in each of these fields, because I think that the desire for expertise and for a kind of 
um, you know, highly functioning and effective expert governance um, or yeah, ability to sort of mediate knowledge about uh, identity and psychological traits is definitely an aspect of psychical research as well. Um, I think that, you know, somewhat differently, it is a matter of uh, the founding of psychical research is a matter of um, these men in university positions um, who are looking at popular practices and saying, what if we took that seriously? Um, what if there's really something to it? Um, and of course, in connection with things like hypnosis, which had become scientific practices um, at that time. And so I think that the, yeah, the trajectory is that they're then, well, these men are then working with, you know, research material that is also these people of the lower classes often um, who are working as mediums for pay. Um, and so the ability to kind of control and discipline their practices is a central aspect of attempting to create an organized psychical research. If I could add just one more thing, I think it's also worth noting that, first of all, science had very porous boundaries in the 19th century. What was and wasn't a science was um, not as clear cut as it is for us in the present day, and values of science were very different. So this was in a period of transition from subjectivity to objectivity as a value in science, for example, um, or uh, the other the other piece I'd also mention, something I do talk about a bit in the book, is that especially in the early period, the 1820s, 1830s in the United States, this is a period of Jacksonian democracy where there was a lot of um, a lot of lack of trust in experts and authorities. Right. So even when we look at these positions of these lawyers and we think of them as elites, they weren't really because I mean, they were, except that people didn't trust them and didn't want to trust them. And what's actually really funny about a lot of the, the physicians and lawyers and judges turning to phrenology in that period is because it had this cachet of being this new European science that was taken seriously, that might actually bolster their expertise and their authority. So we think of it as this weird thing that why would these elites have adopted this, this pseudoscience when actually it was the other way around, them actually trying to borrow expertise and authority from a science that was taken more seriously than sometimes they were in, in American society of the period. Mm -hmm. Yeah, similarly with psychical research, um, it's the French neurologists who they really lean on. Um, but yeah, I think as and I think that my work is, you know, more in the shadow of the 20th century um, sort of rise of scientific authority. And so it's it's hard to not read psychical research um, in reverse as kind of a path not taken. Oh, this is great, actually, and I, and I, I have a question uh, about about this. The mind sciences is a sort of a distinctly American national project, so you're sort of anticipating this question. Uh, and I, I love particularly, Alicia, your example of, of, you know, psychical science being in the same vein as of meteorology as sort of a, a Jeffersonian citizen science project. Courtney, your example about uh, criminology sort of going hand in hand with, with prison reform, and, and uh, you know, we have the, the papers of Eastern State at, at the APS, and I can't can't not mention those. Um, but I, I wanted to ask, you know, to what extent, and, and I think you've, you've both talked about this, that, that your actors are, are reacting to, to particular social, um, scientific, technological climates that are, that are uh, occurring in 19th century America. But, but I wanted to ask you, to what extent do you see phrenology and, and psychical research as actually um, actively influencing uh, kind of a distinctly American uh, approach to doing scientific and medical research? Do you see this? I mean, we've sort of talked a little bit about the European influences, but it seems to me that both of your books suggest that there's something distinctly American about these, these methodologies as well. So would love to hear um, your thoughts about that. Maybe Alicia, you can go first. Yeah, I think that that's definitely, uh, my, my book is framed in that way, and I don't want to, you know, overextend that claim in that, like, this was a very international, this was a very international field, and they were very much, the American Society of, for Psychical Research is very much an outgrowth of the British one, and dependent on them financially for significant periods of time, um, and so they're, again, getting their scientific authority from Europe. Um, and so I think what's interesting for me is the close is the proximity between 
those who are acting as leadership of the society who often have academic positions and participants who are, again, not entirely convinced by the um, authority of those individuals and who are challenging their interpretations and understandings and asserting their own understandings of, uh, of evidence and events. Um, and so I think that I'm not, I wouldn't say that that dynamic is uniquely American, but I think it's related to their understanding of what an American science is and um, what it means to be a participant. Well, as I said, there's a growing recognition among scholars of phrenology and the history of science at large that phrenology, like many sciences, was a global science, right? But that doesn't mean it didn't have its own sort of unique character and its own unique story. I mean, I, I've, I've mentioned this to other people. I'm not sure if this audience is aware, but I actually started my career intending to be a French historian. And I thought that I was going to be doing a French dissertation. Um, and the sources led me to the United States because that's where the aspects of the story that I was most interested came into fruition. Um, for example, medical expert witnesses on the stand using phrenology or phrenologists being called to the stand only happened in the United States, right? And that I think speaks to the particular matrix of, of trust and doubt about experts, about the uncertain status of physicians themselves in 19th century, uh, the early part of the 19th century United States, when we have this um, proliferation of medical sects, we have our Thompsonians and our, 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 our um, homeopaths and then so why not phrenologists right there was a very different sort of literal structure to science and medicine in the 19th century that allowed phrenology to gain a, a foothold that it simply doesn't get elsewhere right add to that the the unique sort of national challenges of the 19th century it's, it's not surprising that it developed the way that it did in the united states um Oh, I, th there's, there's so many things I could say, so many examples I could pull out, but I will say that the story that I told, while phrenology itself certainly has a robust story in Europe, especially in Germany and France, in the United Kingdom, uh, there's a global story to be had. The story of phrenology and crime is one that really is a story of the United States because of these, this space that was made for phrenology to sort of come into these spaces and speak to these intransigent social problems that people really wanted a solution to. And that, you know, why not phrenology as opposed to something else? Um, Go ahead, Alicia, are you gonna jump in? Yeah, well, I think that my interest is sort of in the, like in the search for a biological foundation, okay. which is, um, I think what allows it to kind of persist within um, the subsequent frameworks of psychology and the mind sciences. That are and neuroscience especially. Um, so I, yeah, I'm just sort of pondering like why for um, psychical research and parapsychology, there's this kind of drift into genuinely um, the parascience realm, the sort of marginal life of popularity and embrace in popular culture, um, but much more significant struggles to gain traction in the academy something that I found really fascinating about both of your, your books is that you've got this, this sort of network of, of people who are really uh, experimenting throughout the periods that you write about with, with gaining that sort of legitimacy and that authority in their practices. And, and uh, you know, both of them are sort of haunted by the specter of, of, of psychology and then later neuroscience. And I, I'm wondering if, if, if there was any sort of opportunity for them to communicate with one another, if there was sort of a, a broader network of, of mind scientists, if the phrenologists were, you know, speaking with the psychical researchers, if there was any kind of effort to, uh, you know, unify approaches to, to, to legitimize, you know, the, the sort of separate fringe sciences into, into one unified fine science, if, if there's any sort of evidence that you've seen uh, in, in your work about there being conversation across, you know, studies of, of the physical head, and then sort of studies of, of the, the, the unconscious and, and the inner workings of the brain. Uh, whoever wants to go first. Maybe Courtney. Well, I'll just say that the phrenologists desperately wanted those connections. Um, as the, the century wears on and phrenology goes from being this sort of elite affair to a primarily popular science, self-described phrenologists, practical phrenologists desperately want to form those connections. And they also desperately want to 
right at the genealogy and the, they're actually very preoccupied with genealogy and history, right? They want to see themselves as the forerunners to all of these, these new advances um, in criminology, so Lombroso, but also the work of, of people like Broca. Um, they are, are so uh, offended that they're being left out of the story and left out of the conversation. And there's a lot of commentary where they basically, they, they look at the works of major neurologists and they say, we said that first. And they find evidence that Spurzheim or Gall or one of their own scientists um, made, made these same claims. The other thing that's, that's really fascinating though is earlier on in the century, there's actually a lot of overlap between what alienists or psychiatrists are talking about uh, in the, the realm of um, nosology, diagnostic categories and what phrenologists are doing. So there's a lot of shared language between people like Philippe Pinel, um, Esquihol, and in fact, the category of monomania uh, or as well as moral insanity, which is a James Cowles Pritchard idea that comes to structure criminal insanity, that idea is basically mixed up and mashed up with phrenological ideas of insanity at the same time. So in the early part of the century, there's, there's like I said, there's not very clear boundaries between what science is and who is what kind of scientist, or even the idea that there are distinct disciplines, which allows phrenology to really work its way in. And then towards the end of the century, as these disciplinary boundaries are being built up and protected, um, where they start to, to man the battlements and, and push the phrenologists out, they're just so offended. They just can't, they can't believe they've been left out of the story when they used to be so incorporated. Um, I always feel a little bad for them uh, because they were you know, as late as the 1930s and 1940s, you have phrenologists saying next year is going to be our year, essentially. And then it never is, unfortunately. Yeah, same story with psychical researchers. It's like people, the world is going to wake up and realize. Um, but I think also that continued thread throughout the 19th century of um, the heredity of mental traits and of mental types, um, or the idea of psychological types is definitely something that psychical researchers, although at that, you know, at that point by the late 19th century, phrenology has become popularized and is no longer something that they want to explicitly engage with. Um, they're still very much dealing with that set of ideas. And I think that, you know, it's reflected at, in spiritualism, um, these, this sort of like inborn mental types, <laughs> type that one is, is translated into the spirit world. And so the spirit world is hierarchical and segregated for many spiritualists. And that's then reflected in mediumistic communications that channel um, very stereotyped, you know, racist uh, characters. And so I think that, and that's sort of uncritically accepted by psychical researchers as a real aspect of the spirit world if it exists. And they're just interested in deciding whether or not it exists, not in, um, not in exploring like why these differences are so essential that they're not only biological, but um, they inhere in the disembodied spirit. I, I think uh, just just as a way to, to conclude, uh, I mean, I, I think it's been fascinating to see the similarities across these, these two sciences and, and the fact that they have been kind of relegated to you know, the, the dustbins that include mesmerism and, and other pseudosciences. Um, so I, I guess I'd, I'd like to end with, with asking you both to reflect on, on what are the lessons um, that we can take from the 19th century uh, in, in thinking about, you know, the 21st century impact of, of phrenology and psychical research. Uh, you know, what, what lessons do you see coming out of this um, that, that still bear relevance um, to make the argument for recuperating them, um, you know, from, from the same category as mesmerism? I think that for me, one of the main insights, I mean, the, the goal is to understand the history of the mind sciences, um, not you know using a different narrative besides the one that uh, the mind sciences themselves have presented. Um, and you know to point to the conditional and provisional nature of psychological knowledge. Um, and so not like, I think considering psychical research and the development of psychology together um, kind of allows us to think more critically about the current claims of, psych of psychology um, to be a science and to be done according to, you know, objective, uh, eternal, eternally valid standards. So the first thing I would say is, Adriana, when you ask this question, you use the word pseudoscience. 
and this is a term I, I honestly can't stand. Uh, I, I have a whole essay that I wrote about, about why it's a bad word, especially if we're talking about chronology. But I think that that's really the point. I think that this is a, a historiographical lesson as well as a, a history lesson, that when we take a science from the past, any kind of science, any kind of practice, and we do not take it seriously as it, was as it was understood in its time, as it affected people in its time, as it shaped the lives and, and deaths. In my case, you know, the, the, the executions of, of convicted criminals, right? What happened to their bodies after death was shaped by phrenology. Um, their skulls were literally taken to be put into cabinets. I think that that, that certainly matters, and especially in the context of some of the de debates about what we do with human remains that we've been having, right? Um, when we use terms like pseudoscience, what we are doing is we are saying we are not like them and we can never be like them because we are smarter than them, because we are wiser than them, because they believed something stupid and we don't. It's, it's, it's a way of taking ourselves out of the history, of, of taking people in the present and saying that we are not part of that genealogy of that story. And I think that what that does and why I'm so, why I'm so focused on, on this question of image and language, right? is that these are the ways that the implicit lessons of sciences of the past, like phrenology, which again is very silly in a lot of ways, but uh, it overlaps, the story of phrenology overlaps in really compelling ways to the story of racial science or eugenics, for example, where the image and language of those other sciences, which have been used and are still used, I would argue, to make claims about who is worthy of life, who is worthy, who is should be permitted to reproduce, which people are worth more, how to divide people into categories, which have been used to uh, enforce racial and racist and sexist ableist hierarchies in the past into the present. Phrenology is certainly a part of that story, right? So when we dismiss phrenology, um, we give ourselves permission to laugh at evidence of phrenology in the present, but we also give ourselves permission to overlook the ways in which things like image and language continue to shape how we talk about other minds and other people into the present day. And that is something that is not just about how we tell this one story, the small story I'm telling about phrenology and crime, but how we should think about dead sciences and pseudosciences in particular, especially when they have bearing on real people's lives, both in the past and in the present. I think that's a great place to end um, and, and to, you know, why, why we need to continue to tell this, the history of, of the 19th century and, and earlier that these sciences do continue to matter um, for all of the work that we're doing and thinking through. Um, well, with that, I think uh, we are out of time. Um, so I wanted to thank you both again uh, for these really wonderful books um, and for participating in today's conversation. Uh, if you haven't already clicked on the link, uh, please do uh, purchase copies. My thanks again to the Consortium for the History of Science, Technology, and Medicine for co-sponsoring, and to all of you for tuning in. And uh, we'll share all of your questions with Courtney and Alicia after today's event. Um, many thanks again. Be well, and see you soon. <laughs>